first of all, welcome. Um, this is Nick Freeman, and Hannah's here as well, helping me out. Um, this is going to be uh, an 11-part series on the book of Revelation that Hannah and I have just finished going through together. Um, maybe the first thing to say is what this is not. Um, I should maybe own up to uh, some of my own background in relation to this book. It's a book I've always found quite difficult. Um, it's weird. Um, it's tended to attract sort of the nutty end of Christianity. Um, and and all, all the bizarre pictures and dragons and beasts, I've always found quite quite difficult to make sense of. But I, I should acknowledge that uh, many years ago I did um, an extended study of the book with David Bowen over in Perth, which was very helpful in unlocking um, the principles of how you handle this type of literature in the Bible. Um, and from that time, it's become a book that I've found uh, more interesting. Um, and the rich picture that it that it sort of begins to build of the gospel that's consistent with the rest of the New Testament but is also quite unique, um, I've found it, it's a book that um, it bears really good fruit. And I think it's also one of those books that's particularly interesting and relevant to explore when times are tough. And in Australia at the moment, um, it, it's amazing the sorts of questions that are pe people are contemplating and asking in the face of, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic that's sort of shaken shaken our foundations a little bit. Um, and maybe it's timely to return to this book in a time like this and have a bit of a look about um, Jesus' perspective on um, the end of things and his perspective on his reign and his kingdom. Um, I hope you find it really rich. Hannah and I have found exploring it over recent months really, really, um, re a really rewarding and a blessing. And so we hope it's a blessing to you. Um, what it's not is um, if you're a doomsday prepper, it's probably uh, these <laughs> sessions aren't going to help you a great deal. Um, two, if you're wanting a really academic analysis of Revelation, I could probably point you in the direction of some good books, but that's not really the purpose of what we're doing here. Um, what we want to do over these 11 se sessions is really think through um, how, how to read Revelation it for yourself and um, how to find um, good food to feed on um, good food that's encouraging and um, challenging that helps us actually live our day-to-day -day lives in the world in in ways that are consistent with who Jesus is and who who we are and the, the kingdom that we're called to um, seek with all our hearts. So I might start just by saying a prayer and asking the Lord to help us and then I'll just introduce the session a little bit more um, and then we'll have a look at chapter 1. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and all the scriptures and we value all of it and even the difficult bits and we just ask that over the uh, this set of sessions that you would um, open our eyes to you. We want you to be the focus 
and open our um, hearts as well to your voice and your leading. And we choose to just um, conform how we see the world and how we live in the world with how you see the world and how you're operating in the world all around us, whether we can see it or whether we can't. Um, we just acknowledge you are Lord and you are ruling the universe and that the great victory has been won and more and more help us to live consistent with that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so I said 11 sessions. Um, for those of you who've heard me teach before, um, you might take this with a grain of salt, but I'm going to try and confine the sessions to between 45 minutes and one hour. Um, we, we will provide some really basic notes, um, maybe some good diagrams and a few simple questions that you could use um, if you're discussing the, these sessions with other people. Um, and Hannah's going to be part of the interaction during these ses sessions. She's sitting here with me and we're going to go, go through the chapters together um, with her contributing and throwing in questions along the way. As I said, session one, um, we'll do three things. Firstly, we'll go through some basic background information about the book of Revelation. Um, then the second thing, which I think is going to be really, really helpful um, for any of you looking at Revelation um, with us over these sessions, I'll, I'll introduce you to four really helpful principles for interpreting the book um, that I that I that, that I think are, um, well, they've really helped me. So hopefully they'll help you. And then the third thing in this session is we'll have a look at um, chapter one um, in in a little bit of detail. Great. Um, so let's dive in. Um, first of all, what can you tell us about who wrote this book? Um, and how does it fit into the life of the early church? Okay, so some, some background information about who wrote the book. So from the second century AD, so very early in the history of the church, um, the author of the book, was a, authorship was attributed to John the Apostle. So the same John that wrote the gospel and wrote the letters, one 1, 2, and 3 John, um, he was uh, seen as the author of Revelation. Um, later in the history of the church, that was um, challenged and some alternative uh, authors named John were thrown up. But um, my view is that th there's no real reason to doubt the attribution of the book to, to John the Apostle. One, one of the big, um, one of the big, uh, reasons why John's authorship is sometimes challenged is the style of writing in Revelation is so different to the style of writing in the Gospels, etc. But um, we need to consider that that this was written probably quite late in his life, and uh, people don't have to always write the same way, um, exploring exactly the same. Um, things decade after decade, year after year. Um, it reminds me of I've recently been listening to um, Bruce Springsteen's new album, <laughs> Western Stars, yeah. and it's a country album. 
Mm-hmm. And so if you if you looked at if you listened to you know uh, Born to Run from 1975, mm-hmm. and you sat it next to Western Stars 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an individual can express themselves quite differently um, over the journey and it can still be the same person. So mm-hmm. just an aside, um, who was John? So he was a, a John the Apostle, very close friend of Jesus, one of the original 12. Um, he had a remarkable relationship with Jesus um, from the Gospels as well. He des- describes himself as the disciple Jesus uh, loved one of his inner circle, one of those three key disciples that um, shared and experienced some of the most intimate moments in Jesus' life and ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's likely that he was perhaps also um, related to Jesus as well, um, in, biologically, etc. Um, John's obviously Jewish and deeply steeped in the Old Testament and understanding um, his heritage and his mm-hmm. story, and um, that's important to consider in this book as well, where so much is drawn from the Old Testament. He's also, um, church history would tell us, a leader of um, the church in Ephesus in Asia Minor. So um, mm-hmm. he's moved away from Israel later in his life and he is established in the city of Ephesus where he clearly had a, a role as a key um, apostle and an elder over the, the church in Ephesus, but also an influence over the churches in the surrounding towns and villages in Asia Minor. And so um, this particular letter is addressed to seven of those um, seven of those churches in Asia Minor in particular, which we would call modern-day Turkey. When was it written? Most likely the, the late first century AD. Um, there, there are some theories around earlier dates, but um, in my view it fits best with the reign of Domitian, who was a Roman emperor in the late first century who was responsible for a significant outbreak of persecution against the church and who the church really viewed as a new Nero um, who was the the uh, brutal emperor who who oversaw a sort of wave of persecution that resulted in people like Peter and Paul being killed in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, Domitian is a, um, a later emperor who really goes after the church and also really pushes emperor worship, which is a um, theme that underlies lots of what's going on in this book as well. Um, John tells us in the first chapter that he's on the island of Patmos, which is just off the coast of um, Ephesus in exile at this time. And he's really writing out of his concern for these young churches to stand firm in the face of persecution, not to compromise, to resist emperor worship. Um, They're words of encouragement, but they're also words of warning about don't fall away, don't um, compromise, don't be sucked in by uh, the world and its deceitful ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and the message really is Jesus is ruling despite the appearances. You know, things look dark and you can imagine you can imagine in the early church there would have been 
lots of questions about where is the kingdom of God in the midst of this these troubles and people dying? Where is the victory of Jesus? What's Jesus up to? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this is a book that really addresses those sorts of questions. Yeah, um, yeah that probably answers that one. Um, so you mentioned that John uses quite a different style of writing in Revelation compared to the Gospel of John, but also compared to probably the whole New Testament. Um, why is it written like that, with symbols about beasts and dragons, etc.? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's the only New Testament book that really um, uses this style of um language or this sort of literary form. Um, we call this style a literary form apocalyptic, um, it's, which, which literally, literally means the idea that you're unveiling hidden things, heavenly hidden things. Um, and so not apocalyptic as in the end of the world. <laughs> no, apocaly- that's right. Apocalyptic in Greek literally means to unveil. Um, um, so it's not so much uh, speaking about timing, although the apocalyptic tradition does tend to look forward to future things. Mm-hmm. So that's an important element. But but what's more important is you're looking at things that are real but hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Ezekiel and Daniel are the two sort of major apocalyptic writers in the, the Old Testament and lots and lots of what, um, John explores in his apocalyptic, um, draws on um, significant passages and visions from Ezekiel and D- Daniel, and we'll see lots of those as we um, move into the book. So it's about presenting the reality of God and his kingdom, but it's, the, it, it's an insight into sort of unseen spiritual realities. It's highly symbolic, and that's really important as well. So apocalyptic doesn't tend to... Um, talk about uh, events or things that are happening in a literal way. It uses symbols very much. It's very visual. It's about pictures, very imaginative, powerful, vivid pictures, and and other symbolic elements as well, like numbers mm-hmm. um, um, and thing uh, recurring images that that you see um, over and over again through um, through the visions. Um, unlike, unlike say other New Testament books, it's to the whole the whole feel of it, um, it, it has a, an old, quite an Old Testament feel. There's, there's over 700 references to angels mm. in the Book of Revelation, which is highly unusual compared to all the other New New Testament books. Um, um, so, just to go through the structure of the book a little bit, so it begins. Mm-hmm. It, um, this is sort of a race through the structure in five basic points. It begins with an opening vision that really zooms in on Jesus mm-hmm. and his relationship to the churches. Then we're taken into heaven um, and there's a vision of Jesus reigning from his throne. Um, and then there's a whole series of um, visions that are about acts of salvation and acts of um, judgment from a heavenly perspective. So we see things like um, harvests and great battles um, 
Um, Jesus represented as one like a son of man in one chapter and like a lamb that was slain in another chapter, like a lion, uh, the lion of Judah in another chapter and like a sort of commander on a white horse, a great king on a white horse in another chapter. So, um, but all of these, all of these things are speaking of the saving work and the judging work of this great king. Um, through the middle of the book, there's a three sets of seven symbolic elements: seals, and then trumpets, and then finally plagues and bowls that um, sort of play out the judging work um, that is coming from heaven to the earth. Um, as a result of the authority of this this great king, and and after that we encounter some um, some of the great enemies of God that will ultimately um, be brought down and judged. So you have dragons and beasts and a false prophet and a harlot, mm-hmm. um, and and all of these enemies of God are sort of painted. Um, is like counterfeit versions of the Trinity or counterfeit versions of the church mm-hmm. um, that lead people astray uh, into worship and into, you know, loyalties to worldly things that that really have a true, um, you know, a heavenly truth in God and who he is and his Trinity and um, his church, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the last four chapters, which is about really God bringing together his redemptive purpose and dealing with the big the big issues of his creation. So you have um, him, the final resolution of the, the question of the church and how that finishes in the wedding supper of the Lamb. And you have um, the final resolution of his people Israel mm-hmm. and finally God's final resolution about how he's going to deal with the nations as well, Um, culminating in the glorious last two chapters of a new heaven and a new earth, a reformed creation where God um, remakes things and dwells with his people um, on the earth um, eternally forever and ever. So that's that's the sort of structure. Could you expand a bit more on... Um, how we should be thinking about Jesus as we interpret this book? Yeah, that sort of that sort of brings us to the next thing I want to talk about, which is these four in- interpretive keys, and that would be the first one. Um, what we need to remember first of all about Revelation is that it's a book where Jesus is the primary focus. Um, mm-hmm. It's not about last things and last events. Essentially, it's about this last person. This person who's the Alpha and the Omega. Mm. Um, And and really when you look at this book, the imagery is in a sense totally foreign to the rest of the New Testament. But in another way, it's not a different story at all. This is is, um, 22 chapters that is really the story of the gospel, but it's just presented in a different and unfamiliar way. Um, it's a story of the gospel using imagery that's totally drawn from the Old Testament. So rather than tell the literal story of Jesus um, coming and being born as a baby and living and his ministry and dying and rising again and ascending and the story of the early church like in Acts from an earthly perspective, 
Um, this is telling the same story in lots of ways, but but from a heavenly perspective and um, using Old Testament pictures to explain those decisive moments in the gospel story. Mm-hmm. So all of it's there, the incarnation's there, the saving power of the cross, the resurrection, Jesus' glorification, his ascension um, and rule, um, Jesus' presence in the world by his word and spirit, Jesus' presence through his church, all of those elements are in Revelation. Um, so um, it's not; it doesn't introduce really um, biblical ideas or theological ideas that are different to the rest of the New Testament. It's just the form is different. Mm-hmm. So how do we interpret the timing? When is this meant to occur? Yeah, yeah, that's a difficult question, um, but I think we can say some things. We've just got to be careful how we think about um, timing. I think the main thing to say in relation to how we are to understand or apply these visions is um, from John's perspective, I think there's a past element, a present element, and a future element to all of these pictures. Mm-hmm. So... Um, even if you go back to the Old Testament prophets um, and how they how they understood prophecy and what was going on, what you would find even in the Old Testament is often there there was an immediate fulfilment of the prophecy, say within the generation that that the prophet was speaking to. Mm-hmm. But there's there was also often a future hope that was to do with a fulfilment in. Um, the day of the Lord or, or the coming of the Messiah that um, looked, looked forward to a time beyond the immediate generation of the people experiencing the prophecy. Um, I think in a sense that's what's going on in John's gospel as well. Um, lots, of these, lots of these prophetic pictures are drawn straight from Old Testament visions. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an Old Testament connection to what we're what we're interpreting here. There's clearly a um, the primary focus of this these visions is to encourage Christians in Asia Minor in the first century AD. Mm-hmm. So we always need to be asking the question: What would people in first century church have made of these pictures? How are they relevant to those people? How did they encourage? or warn or exhort um, that generation of Christians. Mm -hmm. I think there's also a fulfilment um, of these visions that's part of the ongoing story of the church as well. So Mm -hmm. um, it's relevant to us in our day as the proclamation of the gospel still goes forward, etc. And there is an element in these visions that's also about looking forward to a future hope when Jesus will come again. So um, these visions are true and real in terms of Jesus' past work, um, in terms of our present experience as the church, but also in terms of our future hope in in the return of Jesus um, to the earth. One of the things I think is really important to understand in relation to um, the question of timing is to have a bit of an understanding of how John would have understood this concept of the day of the Lord. Um, 
And to explain that, we just need to say one or two things about the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there was a view that the present age would end with the coming of the Messiah and the restoration of the kingdom, Mm -hmm. and that would usher in a new age Mm -hmm. um, where God would rule on the earth, Mm -hmm. uh, where where things would be restored and redeemed. Mm -hmm. Um, And that point event in the future was called the day of the Lord, that mm-hmm. that time when the Messiah would, would turn up, the king would be established the, and, the, and kingdom rule would um, occur from that time on. Now, that so Old Testament, that's a single point event. In the New Testament, the picture becomes more complicated because what we recognise is, yes, there was an old age, then Jesus turns up on the earth mm-hmm. and he clearly understands that his coming is means the kingdom is present and the king is here. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, the day of the Lord, from Jesus' perspective, begins with, with his coming to the earth mm-hmm. um, 2,000 years ago. And um, we see in his life and then death, resurrection and his ascension to rule um, that that is actually the fulfilment of lots of these prophecies about the day of the Lord, where where the victory is won and where a new age begins, etc. Yeah. But then we we all we have this period that the Old Testament didn't really foresee, where you would have the reign of the king occurring alongside uh, an old age that's still present in the world. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and so you have a period in history that's gone on for 2,000 years where you have the new age of the kingdom running alongside the old age of the fallen sort of the fallen world and where you still have, um, you know, sin and, the, and all, the, all the problems and brokenness of the world running concurrently alongside a kingdom of God established on the earth through the church, etc., yeah. that will be finally resolved when Jesus returns to the earth again mm-hmm. and, and then life will change from by faith to by sight and where, um, you know, that, that victory that was won at the cross and it has been expressed through the proclamation of the gospel over the last few 2,000 years, that victory will ultimately be unveiled for everyone to see by sight. All that to say is this, when John is presenting visions to us of a heavenly perspective of what's going on with Jesus, what's going on with the kingdom. Mm. What you need to understand is he's sort of got his eye on three things at once. Mm. He's looking back to the ultimate victory that was won on the day of the Lord when Jesus turned up and lived and died and resurrected and ascended. Mm-hmm. So he's he's looking back to that past event as the crucial defining victory f- for all time. Mm. He's also looking at the victory in terms of now, the present, in mm-hmm. terms of um, the victories being expressed every day through the life of the church in the world and particularly through the proclamation of the gospel to the world. Mm -hmm. So that's the expression of the victory Mm -hmm. that's present. And then he's also looking forward to that 
future moment when Jesus will come again and there'll be an unveiling for all the world to see um, where, where this victory will be made manifest once and for all um, in history on the earth. Um, so in terms of timing, you have to have an understanding that that, that past, present and future uh, element uh, needs to be considered with lots of the pictures in this book. Okay. Um, how important is it for us to have an understanding of these Old Testament pictures that John keeps referencing? Uh, um, I think it's a key, um, the key in lots of ways to interpreting the book. So if, if I was to say a third interpretive key, it's you've got to stick with the pictures. Mm -hmm. um, take time, as we're going through, take time to really imagine the picture that's being presented to you. Try and make sense, and that's what we'll do together as we're going through. We'll try and make sense of what what is this? What would this actually look like? What are the elements in the picture? Mm. Um, it's very vivid and very visual these visions, and you've got to take time. It's not so much about analytically, you know, pulling apart language, etc. It's it's capture capture a sense of this imaginative picture that John presents to us. Mm. Um, so, so one, stick with the pictures, but two, we've got to go back into the Old Testament and find out where these pictures are from mm. and do, do a bit of patient digging mm. um, because understanding the original picture in its context is, in the Old Testament is often the key to making sense of how John's using the picture mm. in, in the book of Revelation. And we'll see again and again, if we get the interpretive picture right mm. and we understand its context in the Old Testament, then the meaning in Re in Revelation will just fall out for us mm. very very often. It's very very helpful. So how do we understand those Old Testament symbols? Well, it, it's a case of um, going back into the the Old Testament passage and um, rec recognizing that this, these symbols in their original context, um, and often they're explained in the Old Testament. What what a particular symbol actually stands for, etc. Yeah. Um, the other thing to say is we struggle with these pictures in a way that Jewish people wouldn't. Mm. Um, Jewish people who knew their Old Testament, you know, most modern Christians don't know their Old Testament very well, especially the prophets, not very well at all. Yeah. But but Jewish people, um, particularly first century Jewish people, the, the prophetic books was, was where they loved to go. Mm. That, that was like the greatest hits. Yeah. For first century Jews, they would have known all the great prophetic sequences in Isaiah and they would have known Daniel's visions and Ezekiel's vision at the end of um, his book, etc. And, and some of the other significant places, Zechariah and um, Joel with their messianic prophecies. They, these were very, very well known um, to Jewish readers. So when Jewish readers are reading Revelation, um, the interpretive keys would have already been there for them. Yeah, they they would have been um, recognizing things that they were quite actually quite familiar with, and that's helpful to see. So I'll, I'll just rattle off a few, but you, you'll see all sorts of interpretive keys. Um, you know, Daniel's vision of beasts out of the sea, the throne room in heaven, plagues in Egypt, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, the Garden of Eden in Genesis, mm. um, pictures of harvest festivals and first fruit festivals, 
um, the day of the Lord we've already talked about. And then um, you'll see, you know, all of all of these things um, come uh, straight out of these prophetic books in the Old Testament. So is John using these um, these visions and references from the Old Testament to describe things that are are going to happen on the earth? Yeah, uh, the answer is y- yes and no. I think that the fourth interpretive key, the fourth key thing to keep in mind as we, we get into these visions is understanding the perspective that, that John's bringing us. It's essentially a perspective from heaven. So we're seeing uh, epic things play out, but, but they're playing out in the realm of heaven mostly. Mm. Um, and so it's, and that, that shapes a lot how we interpret what's going on in the book. Um, the purpose is not so much to explain future events on the earth, but to be encouraged now by this unique perspective of what's going on in heaven. What's the reality mm. of the kingdom? What, what's Jesus up to reigning and ruling? Mm. Um, so what, what you'll find is the perspective, this heavenly perspective will often have um, a corresponding earthly reality. Mm. Um, the heavenly reality will often have earthly consequences or an earthly expression, mm. but it's important to understand the perspective that we're getting is of an unveiled heaven. Yeah. So when you say in heaven, you're not saying it's happening somewhere far off and separate from earth, but it's it's connected to what's happening on the earth. Yeah, yeah, it's connected. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it, it is connected but he- heaven is the place where God is. So it's about where God is present, um, where his life and rule um, are expressed in unveiled glory. And we're getting a glimpse into that in this book. Yeah. Um, and so um, you see things that are going on in heaven often that parallel things that are going on on the earth. It's helping explain um, how things are happening, uh, what what things are happening on the earth, and why and how, mm. but the perspective is a heavenly one, and that's a really important perspective to keep in mind. Sure. Um, what we might now now do is move into having a look at chapter one. So we'll take a few minutes to hear Hannah just read the chapter for us, um, and then we'll say a few things about. Um, what we're seeing in this opening chapter. Revelation chapter 1, prologue. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Greetings and Doxology John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, 
and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. One like a son of man. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone, like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell to his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so chapter one. The first, the first verse in the whole book is, in a sense, the key to the whole rest of it. Um, like, like most ancient manuscripts, um, the, opening, the opening passages often provide an interpretive key to the, to the whole rest of um, what's going to be written, and, and it's definitely the case here. So the verse 1 really begins with, John saying the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So you're immediately told where your attention should focus on the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is going to be a book um, about Jesus. 
where you where you're going to the thing that's being unveiled, and that's what the word uh, revelation means. Apocalypto means unveiling. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Amazingly, um, towards oh, in verse two, um, it's described as the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's actually Jesus bearing witness to himself, and that idea gets returned to um, again yeah. and again through the book. This idea of this is the testimony of Jesus Christ, the spirit of prophecy, etc. Mm. Um, it's Jesus actually um, bearing witness. Uh, about what he's doing um, from the perspective of his reign in heaven mm. uh, rather than uh, the apostolic witness, which was what he did while he lived um, with, a, with human beings on the earth. Um, okay. The focus very much in these first verses on, is on the fact that Jesus reigns, um, mm. that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Um, and it's a picture of John saying to us, you're going to get an insight into the rule and reign of this great king of kings, the Alpha and the Omega. Um, the thing, another thing, important thing to recognise about um, unveiling is it's, it's the, and understanding Jesus' rule or reign, What's being presented to us is a hidden thing, not a partial thing. So, so when, when, um, when, when for first century Christians or for us today, looking around the earth and thinking, is Jesus really reigning? There's so much that doesn't seem to reflect his kingdom or his life. Mm. Um, the message that we're getting from this book is he certainly is. The reality is total victory. The reality is he's reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. Um, because appearances don't appear consistent with that doesn't mean his reign is incomplete mm. or that the job is not finished or that he's not in total control. It just means it's veiled or hidden. Mm. Um, and so Revelation is not uh, showing you a glimpse of something partial. It's actually making a hidden thing revealed. Mm. A thing that you can't see with your eyes, um, he, um, you're, you're being taken into and being gim, given a glimpse of. Yeah. Um, just a, an, a, a, probably another point about verse 2. Um, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, again, this book is claiming an incredible authority that what's being presented to us is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. So um, th these passages remind me of, um, you know, that, that section at the beginning of John's gospel where, mm. where John talks about... Um, the fact that he came among us um, and dwelt with us and we beheld his glory, mm. the glory of an only begotten son, etc. That That idea um, that John's recognised on the earth that they caught a glimpse of Jesus' glory mm. in, in when he was present with them on the earth. This is sort of similar, but it's from a heavenly perspective. This is sort of an, uh, 
a glimpse into the heavenly reality of the glory of the only begotten. What follows then is a few verses that really underline the point I made before that um, John is really going to tell us the gospel story in quite a unique way. So he addresses, verse 4, he addresses this this prophecy um, to the seven churches in the province of Asia and we'll learn much more about them in chapter 2 and 3. But then he he introduces... um, with a sort of doxology or, or almost like a, like a prayer or a song, a whole lot of um, essential information about Jesus and who he is and what he's done that really is a, a version of the presentation of the gospel. So if you read um, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 4 through um, verse, verse 8, you've got all the elements of the gospel story there, that Jesus is risen that he lives and reigns, that his love um, has motivated these um, eternal actions, that he's dealt with sin by his blood, that he's made us a kingdom of a kingdom and priests, and that ultimately he's going to come back again. So it, it's sort of walking through um, a presentation or a version of the gospel story um, that, again, his readers would be familiar with familiar with. They're the the basics of um, Jesus' witness of his life and death um, and resurrection on the earth and the implications that's had for setting people free and, um, you know, sanctifying, making them um, a kingdom and priests to serve God and Father. Um, And then what what's going to happen is really it's this story, this gospel story, that's going to play out in the visions that follow. Um, it starts to get quite exciting from verse nine. So, um, well, not that the first bit hasn't been exciting; it has. But um, he starts to um, give us a little bit of biographical detail about himself and his circumstances on Patmos, and he talks about the fact. Um, the circumstances surrounding when he received these visions. Um, On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So um, this angel is instructing John to um, document the visions that he's going to be presented with for the purpose of encouraging these churches in Asia Minor who are being persecuted. And then we have the first extraordinary vision. And in some ways it's one of the most extraordinary in the whole book. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one, was someone like a son of man. Now, these lampstands are going to, going to be um, explained and I'll, I'll leave an explanation to, of those lampstands for when we look at Chapter 2 and 3 in the churches because that's really what the lampstands represent. Um, but what you need to picture is you, you have this figure like a son of man, so recognisably human. Um, that's a, that's a, um, an important question quote that Daniel uses in um, Daniel chapter 7 in one of the messianic um, 
prophetic texts in in his book. And then you get this extraordinary description of this figure dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with golden sash around his chest. Um, You've got his head and hair white like wool, eyes like blazing fire, bronze feet, voice like rushing water, holding seven stars in his right hand, out of his mouth a double-edged sword and a face shining like the sun. What's going on here? What are you saying, Hannah? (laughs) Just to put you on the spot. He's seeing Jesus in all his heavenly glory. Yeah, yeah. What what you need to understand is this is not literal. So he didn't literally see someone standing there with, um, uh, you know, a double-edged sword coming out of their mouth and bronze feet, etc. What's going on for John is what you need to understand is who, who is Remember who John is and his relationship to Jesus. He knows Jesus intimately, knew him intimately on the earth, would recognise his voice anywhere. Um, And it's absolutely fascinating that in his opening description here of a figure who is clearly Jesus, Mm. he doesn't use one bit of description that is about familiarity, that's Mm. that's about drawing on the Jesus he knew. Um, there's not one thing that is taken from the, the, the life of the carpenter in Nazareth. Mm. Um, why? Well, I think what's going on is he's, he, he is seeing Jesus in his unveiled glory. Mm. And it's so awesome. It's so breathtaking. It's like he hasn't got words, human mm. words, to describe what he's actually, what he's actually seeing. So he recognises this is a man, but this is unlike any man that I've ever seen. Mm. Um, it, this is an encounter with pure holiness, mm. absolutely pure holiness that's radiant and powerful, awe-inspiring in, in absolutely every way. You could compare it to moments in the Old Testament where people see angels mm. and they just like, They can hardly breathe and they fall down like they're dead and they're absolutely terrified. Mm. John's having a moment like this with something way more glorious, way more holy, way more significant than an angel. Mm. This is Jesus seen for who he truly is. And John's you can imagine John fishing for words. How am I going to describe this? Mm. So what he does is he goes back to the familiar descriptions of glory and power and holiness from the Old Testament, and he just logs them mm. one after the other to build this picture of this incredible creature. Well, not a creature, King, Jesus. Jesus. Um, a literal description couldn't convey the glory, so he uses these Old, Old Testament pictures because he's, he wants to convey that this person is completely other, completely mm. unlike anything he's ever encountered. Mm. Like um, seeing into another dimension. Yeah, utterly breathtaking. I, I think it, this is a sort of a moment that, that we can all pause a little bit because there's something significant about what's going on here. I don't know about you, but I'd be interested in, in, interesting to ask you, Hannah, but... 
I think our instinct as human beings is to want to retreat into the familiar all the time. We like things that we can connect to or relate to or etc. So a peasant carpenter from Nazareth eating fish with children on his knee, we're drawn to that picture mm. of Jesus because we can connect to it. It's like us. Yeah. Um, it's about his humanity drawing us. And that's right and that's good. Mm. But this is showing us a different picture of Jesus that is in fact just as important, maybe more important. We also have to see God himself in Jesus. Mm. Those times where we would just fall before him overwhelmed, mm. sort of struck dumb, just having our breath being taken away, awestruck, like the centurion at the cross, you know, when he says, you know, he has that moment where he's watching a man die, by the way, mm. but he has that moment where he goes, this is truly is the son of God. Mm. Those sorts of moments are incredibly important for, for us as Christians as well because there's a sense in which until we encounter Jesus like that, we haven't seen him in his full reality. Mm. So um, I, I think um, dwelling on these sorts of pictures, don't be frightened of them or just be weirded out by them. Dwell on them. Take mm. them to God. Worship him. Um, recognize that there's a there's a part of Jesus that's just so awesome and incredible and so different to you. Mm. Um, recognize his lordship. Recognize his glory. Speak to him about these mm. things. Um, it, be drawn to his humanity, but reverence his holiness as mm. well. Yeah. Fascinating verse seventeen. When I saw him, I find this verse amazing. I fell at his feet as though dead. It's, it's incredible anyway, but it's incredible because this is the man that probably was best friends with Jesus during his yeah. earthly life, and that's his response. Mm. Then Jesus um, places his right hand on him and, and speaks. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amazing words, incredible words. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords just speaking out of total authority, mm. total power, total victory. And then he instructs John to write, write therefore what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. Um, one of the things that I think is really significant to remember just before we finish chapter, chapter 1 is that, that that line, do not be afraid. Um, the holiness of Jesus is not something that we need to shy away from and be frightened of. Mm -hmm. It's something that actually should draw us to worship and draw us to intimacy and draw us to shared life. And it yeah. reminds me of these um, the picture in Hebrews chapter 12, and I might um, finish just reading it to you. 
Um, 18 to 18 to 29, where the writer to the Hebrews contrasts what it meant to have a holy encounter in the New T- Old Testament compared to what it means to have a holy encounter in the in the context of the New Covenant, mm. um, and in in terms of the difference Jesus has made. And he, he says this, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they couldn't bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. So that encounter on Mount Sinai with a holy God just frighten the pants off Israel. They didn't want to go up the mountain. Yeah. They said to Moses, you go on our behalf. There's no way we're going up the mountain. Even Moses is trembling with fear at the awesome experience of encountering mm. God in his holiness. Mm. It was a frightening thing. Mm. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't be look at God and live. Verse 22, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. These sorts of pictures will be picked up in Revelation later. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the contrast is total. Um, This is a picture that's just as holy, Mm. just as awesome, but rather than something that that creates fear and causes sinful human beings to want to run away and hide, Mm. because we have a mediator of a new covenant, Mm. Um, we can come and it's joyous. Mm. It's about joy and it's about wanting to race into the intimate presence of Jesus. Yeah. and It's actually beneficial for us to encounter God in his holiness because then we can recognise our need for justification and then appreciate it, that yeah. he has justified us. Yeah. Yeah, you recognise what he's done. Yeah. Um, what he's done to sort out this horrible mess in in such a perfect, holy way. Yeah. Um, being invited right into the middle of his life mm. and the life of um, God. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised once more. I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Just that recognition that... God's bringing together through his son Jesus heaven and earth in a way that's shaking away the things that aren't going to last, the created things, and establishing things that are eternal and that we're part of those eternal, that that new eternal reality. 
Um, this holy God has made us holy to share his life. Absolutely um, breathtaking. And in lots of ways, what, what the, the summary in, in chapter 8 of Hebrews is lots of what the book of Revelation is going to, going to explore, isn't it? It's mm. going to be about the shaking of things. We're going to see the shaking of things. Mm. Um, we're going to see incredible works of um, judgment and salvation and redemption as God brings together his purposes for, for all of heaven and all of earth. Um, the last the last verse of chapter um, one, I'm not going to pick up on now. He, Jesus explains the symbols that the seven stars are angels and the seven lampstands are like seven churches. But um, we'll begin the next sec- session unpacking this vision of Jesus standing among the lampstands and his relationship to the churches. Mm-hmm. And that'll be the focus of what we do next. One last thing. I think verse 19 is quite interesting. The instruction that Jesus um, gives, I've turned, turned the page and now I can't see. Where's 19? There we go. I know you. No, that's chapter 2. Oops. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Um, again, in relation to some of those interpretive keys that we talked about at the beginning of the session, this session, um, that's a real clue that, that Jesus' instruction through the angel is there's things that relate to what's happened in the past, mm-hmm. to what's happening in the present, and mm-hmm. what, will, what will happen in the future. And it's just a reminder that going forward, um, these pictures are going to have a relevance um, looking back right now and looking forward. Um, hereby ends session one. <laughs>